Hi, I'm Guy Powell, and welcome to the next episode of The Backstory on the Shroud of Turin. If you haven't already done so, please visit GuyPowell.com and sign up for more episodes. Today, we're talking with Alessandro Piana. He is a shroud researcher and syndenologist, and he has some very fascinating things to talk about what are called the missing years. Where was the shroud after 1204, after the Fourth Crusade? Where did it go? I am the author of the newly released number one best-selling book, The Only Witness, A History of the Shroud of Turin, and it is a historical fiction tracing a possible yet plausible history of the shroud over the last two millennia. So let's get started. With that, let me tell you a little bit about Alessandro. Uh, Alessandro lives in Monza, Italy, and it's about uh, maybe an hour, maybe an hour and a half from Turin, so we're very jealous that he's that close. Uh, he holds a degree in uh, biological sciences with a biomolecular specialization from the University of Milan. And for years, he has participated in research and debate on the Shroud of Turin. His area of his specialty has to do with the missing years. So that's after 1204. And he has published several books. One, The Shroud, The Missing Years, published in 2007. The next one, The Shroud, A 2,000-Year-Long Mystery. A third book, Why Is the Shroud Not a Fake? And then, of course, he's published numerous articles and presented in-depth studies at many national and international congresses. And uh, you can find more information on him at academia.edu forward slash Alessandro Piana, and we'll certainly provide that link in the, in the show notes. In 2010, he was named a member of the International Scientific Committee of the International Workshop on the Scientific Approach to the Acheropoetus Images, the Acheropoetus Images. I don't know how to say it, but it's basically those images not made by the hand of man. And that yes. was held at the ENEA Research Center in Frascati. And uh, there's more information on that at www.acuropoetus.info. And again, I'm not uh, definitely not pronouncing it correctly. And lastly, he has also been interviewed and presented in radio and television uh, broadcasts on national as well as uh, private networks. So uh, with that, let me introduce Alessandro Piano. Uh, welcome. Glad to have you. Hi, Guy. Glad to see you again. And thanks a lot for your kind invitation. Uh, and I'm waiting uh, for you in Italy soon, I hope. <laughs> I am coming. If the shroud okay. is gonna be on, on uh, display, I am coming in 2025. That's when we're hoping. Okay. So absolutely, I wanna meet you then. It uh, will be a great pleasure for me. <laughs> oh, it will definitely be for me as well. It'll definitely, it's definitely on my, bu bu uh, my bucket list. So anyway, with that, uh, Alessandro, so tell us your backstory on how you got involved in the Shroud of Turin. My first experience with the Shroud of Turin goes back many years now. I was born in 1975, and the first encounter was in 1983. The reason is very simple. In 1983, in the month of March, Umberto II, the last king of Italy, passed away, and by testamentary will, the Holy Shroud passed permanently from the House of Savoy to the Holy Church of Rome. At that time, as a child, I was devouring weekly newspapers more out of curiosity than anything else, and I came across the pictures of the shroud for the very first time. So there was talk about this mysterious sheet. 
From this moment on, I must say that my curiosity about the object accompanied me for a long time. During my teenage years, I started to read books about the shroud, and my curiosity grew and grew. As you said in the introduction, I have a scientific background, but I have a great passion for history, and I was always curious about where the object came from, with all its baggage of fascination and mystery. That is why I became interested in the shroud, especially from the historical point of view, fascinated above all by this curiosity. As time went on, I obviously got over the question of the concept of the shroud's authenticity, and I am becoming more and more curious about the significance of the shroud. That is, why the shroud was given to us, and above all, how it has changed with the passage of time, also an anthropological and devotional approach, that is, how humanity has stood towards this object. And I think this is really one of the most fascinating aspects of shroud research. Yeah, interesting. And uh, um, so, so let's get to uh, one of the big questions concerning the shroud, and that is uh, how the shroud went from Constantinople in 1204 AD to France uh, with Geoffrey de Charny. And uh, what do you believe happened? To answer this question, we would have to go back in time for a moment, starting from a very specific time period. Around the middle of the 14th century, in Lyrée, France, which is a small fiefdom in the Diocese of Troyes, France, Geoffrey de Charny was a valiant knight and prominent figure in the Kingdom of France. He placed a sheet in a church he founded on which the imprint of a man was visible, a man who had died as a result of crucifixion. For almost all contemporaries, there is no doubt that this man was Jesus the Christ. For others, however, it was not. To this period dates one of the very first controversies concerning the Shroud. On the other hand, there is no precise tradition of how the Shroud arrived in Europe. For this period, rather than a history of the Shroud, we could write a history of historiography, that is, a history of all the theories that have been presented to try to fill this gap to explain the arrival of the Shroud in France. While it is true that from the mid-10th century there was a very concrete tradition identifying the burial clause of Christ in Constantinople, we have to go to the beginning of the 1200s, to the beginning of the 13th century, to find the first evidence of an object that we can in all likelihood identify as the shroud, which is now preserved in Turin, Italy. Specifically, we are talking about the testimony of a European knight Robert de Clary, a crusader knight in the army during the conquest of Constantinople, made during a period of truce. So we are not yet at the time of the conquest of the city in 1204, but we are around the middle of 1203. During a lull in the war, he managed to visit the city of Constantinople, and during his tours, he tells us about something he sees in a church called St. Mary of Blacharnay named after the neighborhood of Constantinople, where the church was located. I read directly to you his words, which are always very fascinating, and they are exactly these. Among the wonders that are there was a church called St. Mary of Blacharnay, where there was the shroud, in which our Lord had been laid and which every Friday was lifted up vertically so that the figure of our Lord could be seen clearly. Sometime later, the Crusaders conquered Constantinople, and again, thanks to his words, we can know, or rather we cannot know, where the shroud ends up. And his words are still these. No one, neither Greek nor Latin, knows what happened to the shroud after the sacking of the city. De Clary's testimony is crucial because it tells us for the first time about the preservation in Constantinople of a figured shroud 
Thus a shroud in which the likeness of the Savior's entire body appears. And this shroud, Declary describes it as a sheet that would have wrapped the entire body. He is describing to us a very large, very long object, evidently to be able to contain the whole body on which the whole figure, not just the face, is imprinted. This is a very important clue to enable us to identify that the shroud seen by Robert de Clary is the same one now preserved in Turin. Yeah, interesting. Um, so, uh, so what kind of evidence is there for the possible presence of the shroud in Constantinople prior to that of Robert de Clary? Yes, the answer is yes. There is evidence, and it is made up of evidence of many different kinds. We have documentary evidence, and that is just as important as the iconographic evidence. We have documentary evidence that goes back to 1201 and is reported by Nicolas Mazarite, who was the guardian of the relics that were in the Church of the Pharaohs, where the relics of the Imperial House of Constantinople were kept. Using Mazarite's words, he reminds us that among the relics of the Passion were also the burial cloths of Christ. And he uses exactly these words. They still know of the fragrance. They defy corruption because they wrapped the ineffable dead, naked and embalmed after the Passion. Again, the testimony is very important because it tells us first of all that they wrapped a naked man. We know that there is a man on the shroud who has no clothes and it would have been very difficult in deference to what were the theological dictates of the time to allow the body of Christ to be portrayed without clothes. So let us put ourselves in the shoes of a man of that period. So this Mesorite testimony brings us very close to what the likeness of the man in the shroud looks like. As far as the iconographic aspect is concerned, the Prey manuscript, which dates back to the late 12th century, is very well known, in which there are depictions, some of which seem to be really borrowed from an archetype. One in particular that depicts the deposition and anointing of Jesus' body in the tomb borrowed from the vision of the shroud. The body is naked, with four arms crossed, and in the hands four fingers are seen as we can observe on the Shroud of Turin. The other two testimonies are very important. The first concerns the Imago Pietatis, which was very original in representing Christ, in which Jesus was depicted as dead, but arranged standing inside the tomb. Some authors have speculated that this type of depiction would recall the shroud, in addition to the posture of Christ's body, again with his forearms crossed, also by the fact that he emerges vertically from the tomb, as was most likely the way Robert de Clary saw the shroud on that Friday in Constantinople. In addition, it's very interesting because it's still unusual to think that there could be such a representation that did not take inspiration from any other known model up to that time. So it almost seems that yes, there could have been an object from which the artist took inspiration. The last evidence, again iconographic, is that of the Lepistaphios, the epitaphs mentioned in the Byzantine liturgy, which are veils used primarily during the Easter season. In them is priestly depicted the body of Christ laid in the tomb, in a posture absolutely similar to that of the shroud. Yeah, very interesting. So we have proof that the shroud was in Constantinople prior to 1204 AD. We have then uh, Robert de Clary seeing the shroud and viewing it. Uh, so then uh, how did the shroud go from Constantinople uh, after it was seen by Robert de Clary? But on this point, I think that we can go beyond all kind of hypotheses. 
If indeed the shroud that Robert de Clary sees was in Constantinople in 1204, its disappearance can only be due to the crusaders who conquered the city in that year. There are a number of hypotheses that try to explain what happened after the sack of Constantinople and the possible arrival of the shroud in Athens in particular. These hypotheses are, though different from each other, grouped into two different threads. The first involves a direct acquisition of the shroud immediately prior to its appearance in France, so it may have been somehow acquired by Geoffrey de Charny in the years immediately preceding the first expositions. The second, on the other hand, which I, but not only I, think is more probable, is that which concerns possession through a family ancestry. That is, Geoffrey de Charny may have received the shroud from some of his ancestors who, for a variety of reasons, were in Greece during the Fourth Crusade. As I said, it is not only me who thinks this. Starting in 1581, with the very first text dedicated to the shroud, written by Manuel Filberto Pignone, Margaret de Charny is mentioned in that text as a woman of Greek origin. So we are already talking about more than 400 years in the past in which there is the first theory regarding the shroud's provenance from Greece. This theory was then expanded over the years and we have come to know it in its entirety as we know it today. And most importantly, one of the last pieces dates back to the early 20th century when one author points to a person as the person responsible for the possession and transfer of the shroud to Europe, that is, Othon de la Roche. And there are absolutely two very important accounts that help us better understand this theory. The first was presented in the early 1980s, during one of the many conferences dedicated to the Shroud, and it is a letter, specifically a plea from 1205 that Theodore Angelo, nephew of the deposed Emperor of Byzantium at the time of the Crusade, wrote to Pope Innocent III, begging him to return what had been stolen during the sack of the previous year. And in this text, of which unfortunately only a transcript has come down to us from the 19th century, he indicates the presence of a sacred shroud in Athens. He speaks specifically about a sacred linen in Artemis, Greece. While two years later, it will be Nicholas of Otranto in 1207, who, accompanying the delegate Benedict of St. Susanna to an interreligious colloquy taking place between the Church of Rome and the Byzantine Church, writes a few years later that he saw with his own eyes, in 1205 in Athens, the burial cloths of Jesus. These are absolutely interesting testimonies, precisely because Athens at that time, following the Fourth Crusade, had become a fiefdom owned by Othon de la Roche, a mysterious character mentioned by multiple sources, linked to the Shroud. <laughs> yeah, very interesting. So, uh, uh, so Othon de la Roche is a, uh, is a big character in how the Shroud moves uh, from Constantinople uh, then over to uh, France. So then uh, how did the shroud now go from Athens uh, to France and then end up with Geoffrey de Charny? This is a beautiful question, but also a very difficult one. It is important to delve into the life of Othon de la Roche. Because of the valor he showed during the Fourth Crusade, he becomes one of the main dignitaries, as I said, who inherits fiefdoms derived from the ancient Byzantine Empire. He in particular becomes Lord of Athens, and Lord of Thebes and Boeotia. He arrives around 1205 in Athens, and is mentioned as he often is in books on the Shroud. 
He is mentioned as having sent the shroud to his father in France in 1206, and that the shroud arrived in Europe in this way. This is not possible for a very simple reason. His father, Ponce de la Roche, a very important figure at the time, died three years earlier in 1203, so well before Othon could in any way have taken the shroud to Constantinople. So it was necessary to further investigate the history of this man. In particular, we are certain that Othon de la Roche remained until 1225 in Athens, after which his trail is lost in Greece. And the most likely hypothesis is that he returned to France and, according to a number of accounts, spent the last years of his life in a religious retreat at the Cistercian Abbey of Bellevaux. He has now completed his succession. He has left his fiefdoms in both France and Greece to his sons who gradually extend their properties, and he returns to France. It is very likely that during the journey from Greece to France, we don't know whether by land or by sea he carried the shroud with him. I don't believe that he could have left it in Greece as an inheritance to his children. It is likely that after the very first period when the shroud may have been kept in his first Athenian lodgings, it may have been perhaps for some time, even in the monastery of Daphnis, where he lodged the Cistercian monks who had arrived from Bellevaux. And once back in France, it may have passed from his fiefdom of Ré sur son possibly even having been taken to Bellevaux. The certainty of his return and death in France we have through documents, but also through historical evidence, archaeological evidence, such as the presence of his tomb. This is further evidence as him being the first of the lords of Athens who is not buried in Greece, in the monastery of Daphnis. But his tomb slab, of which we have a beautiful replica inside the castle of ré sur it is a collateral victim of the French Revolution and from the Abbey of Bellevaux. Today is found transported inside the Church of Savoie, a very small village nearby. The most likely hypothesis is therefore that Othon de la Roche, once he acquired the shroud after the sack of Constantinople, brought it to his French possessions in the first quarter of the 13th century. Yeah, very interesting. So the what I've always found interesting is why um, either Othon de la Roche or even Geoffrey de Charny didn't speak too much or didn't talk much about the fact that they owned the shroud. So why do you think they kept the shroud silent, uh, both by uh, Othon de la Roche and then later by uh, Geoffrey de Charny? I believe that the reason for this silence is to be found in what happened in 1215, just following what happened in Constantinople. That raid left traces throughout the centuries of crusader fury against the Byzantines. In 1215, the Fourth Ecumenical Council was held, at which, among the many reasons for discussion, was the fate of the relics. And in Canon 62 of this council, it was mentioned of the need to venerate only relics placed within specific reliquaries, and secondly, only by permission of the Holy Roman Church. So whoever possessed a relic had to unequivocally prove its provenance. If someone were to admit the shroud really came from Constantinople and that it was stolen by the Crusaders, it would have been very difficult for a noble personage to prove that ownership. The noble would have had to say that he or she was in possession of an object that had been stolen. And this silence is precisely the basis of the secrecy whereby it is assumed that through the successors of Othon de la Roche, the shroud ended up in the hands of Geoffrey de Charny, probably through his second wife who was a direct descendant to the fifth generation of Othon de la Roche. We will find this same silence a few centuries later, when, during the passage of the shroud from Marguerite de Charny, the last heir of the lineage, the shroud ends up in the hands of the Savoy family in 1453. Yeah, interesting. So uh, one thing that always comes up is whether the Templars uh, were involved. 
so were the Templars involved in uh, in this uh, in this history? The Templars are such a fascinating topic that it has also involved historical research on the Shroud. In the late 1970s, this theory based on a very simple assumption took hold. The name similarity between Geoffrey de Charny, the first possessor of the Shroud, and Geoffrey de Charnay, one of the Templar dignitaries, burned at the stake along with Jacques de Molay on March 18, 1314. It is a bit flimsy as evidence, not least because time has shown that genealogically these two figures had absolutely nothing in common. Instead, this theory put forth that the Shroud had passed from the Templar dignitaries into the hands of our well-known chevalier, Geoffrey de Charny. From this point of view, I have a major suspicion because at the time of the trial, when the Templars are accused of worshipping an idol, the Baphomet, they did not take the commitment and the ardor to say that the Shroud is not an idol. It is not an artifact. It is the real Shroud of Jesus. They could have done it. They could have saved themselves by saying it. And it was absolutely legitimate for the most important monastic order of chivalry to possess such an object. The fact that they did not do so does indeed arouse a lot of suspicion about the validity of this theory, although it seems fair to me to be able to say that in any case, an eventual involvement of theirs in assisting the transport of the Shroud to France could not be ruled out. It is speculation, but in my opinion, it could absolutely not be ruled out. Yeah, very interesting. So um, you mentioned the monastery. So uh, how was Othon de la Roche involved in the monastery? Othon de la Roche is very involved with the monasteries and their religious adherents. In particular, his family was very much involved with the Cistercians. Just remember that when his father Pons died in 1203, there were two abbeys competing for his remains. That is, two abbeys come to an agreement. To the one of the two who does not receive the body for burial comes an allowance of a financial nature to be able to accommodate that person. As I said before, Othon de la Roche takes great care of religious followers. He ousts Byzantine Orthodox religious from the Abbey of the Daphne Monastery in Greece in order to bring in Belleville religious followers from France. And it is very likely that he in turn comes to this religious center that represents precisely the crossroads in those years in what concerns the connection between the East and the West. That is the focal point. Around that abbey revolved a series of related families, a very important family network, and religious persons who made the Imitatio Christi one of their core values, a cornerstone of their religiosity. So it is also likely that from this point of view, there may be a religious involvement of a family network in what concerns the transfer of the Shroud to France. That is why Othon de la Roche's connection with monasteries and their adherence is very important. Yeah, interesting. So, um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, there are other theories that have the Shroud going from France after it having been acquired by the King of France, possibly also in the early 13th century. Um, what do you see as the differences between the two theories? I assure you it is an extremely interesting theory, extremely worthy of a lot of attention. Somewhat as I just said a little while ago about the Knights Templar, I wonder why possibly this was kept quiet, beyond what may have been what was issued following the Fourth Lateran Council of 1215. If it was the property of the King of France, why didn't the King of France go out of his way to make this known? Why, from the documentary point of view, do we have nothing? Both theories, both the one concerning Othon de la Roche and the one concerning the passage into the hands of the King of France, are extremely interesting and base what is their foundation on silence. This could explain, as I said before, so many things. 
I still, however, continue to think that the theory concerning the family passage through De La Roche to De Charny is one that rests on the greatest documentary and other evidence. It is the one most worthy of further investigation, with the understanding that both are hypotheses. Nothing is certain. That of the Shroud's provenance and arrival in France is one of the many open issues surrounding the Shroud. Yeah, interesting. So let me uh, kind of change the subject a little bit. So I've seen a replica of the Shroud, and it is incredibly impressive, and, and, it, and it, it just you know, changes your whole uh, demeanor. Uh, but what do you think it meant for a man of the 13th century to view the shroud? And do you think it was different from today? Beautiful question and a topic of great fascination. As we read, we have here today the accounts dating back to the period of the Lurey controversy in which it is told how men came to Lurey to see the shroud. They would walk sometimes very long paths without the comforts of today. They would wait for hours to see the shroud being displayed from the balcony of the church in Lirey. They were in eager anticipation. Even to recall our days, the throngs of people who flocked also bought souvenirs commemorating that event. One of the earliest evidences of the display of the shroud in medieval times is a lead medallion that dates back to the mid-14th century, which was found in the 19th century dredging of the Seine River in Paris, and is one of the medallions that pilgrims of the time took home after seeing the shroud. It was a remembrance of their pilgrimage to see the shroud. The shroud is perhaps not understood by the contemporary man. As I said in the introduction to the second question you asked me, for some men in the Middle Ages, there is no doubt that the man in the shroud is Jesus, the Christ, period. There is no alternative. But for others, there is not. And this is the most interesting aspect, to see through the writings how the medieval man, the man who needs signs, the man who draws heaven more and more to earth in a metaphorical sense needs such objects. To me, it also reminds me in many ways of the man of today, the man of the 21st century who even with all the conveniences, with all the technology of our times, is still anchored to certain signs. And the shroud certainly represents one of these signs. The shroud carries within it a message of faith and a message of hope that I think is the best link between medieval man and 21st century man between medieval man and us. Yeah, interesting. Um, I, I think of any age, whether it was uh, in the first century or the fifth century or the 13th century, the, uh, what it must have meant, and it must mean the same or even more uh, as it does to me. So uh, with that, uh, what do you see as kind of the next big thing for the shroud? There are so many aspects that will become known about the shroud. In general, I believe one thing. All the research revolving around the Shroud should be complementary to each other. History cannot give us all the answers we expect from the Shroud. But together with science, it is to help us get them. I often cite a very simple example, which is pollen research. Research from the scientific point of view on pollen shows a route that the Shroud may have taken over the centuries, which is quite superimposable to what historical research tells us. We always have to evaluate when we talk about the Shroud, the complementarity of studies, the synergy of studies. From the historical point of view, I believe very much that all of these theories, as I was saying before, and I apologize if in this point of view I will repeat myself, but beyond what is personally thought, they should be evaluated for what they are, that is, hypotheses, and provide further insights for research. There is another aspect that is extremely interesting, and I connect to the last question you asked, which is to try instead to write a history of devotion. That is, 
how from the anthropological point of view of history, of devotion, of the history of piety, the object that has gone through all of these centuries, I think may more than the centuries that radiocarbon dating has told us, has been able to speak to the human heart. Rather than going through a history of documents, it would be more useful to go through a history of devotion, a history of the meaning of this extraordinary object. Yeah, I think the, uh, the next uh, five years or maybe 10 years are going to be very interesting. And uh, certainly it, it depends on what kind of access is granted and things like that. But uh, certainly, I think over the last couple of years, the interest in the shroud has certainly taken off. And what you're doing and what I'm doing and what every one of the synonologists are doing, I think is making a big difference in really bringing the knowledge and existence of the shroud uh, to many uh, Christians and non-Christians as well. Um, Alessandra, thank you so much. It's been uh, really my pleasure to have you on and learn uh, so much about those hidden years. And uh, there's uh, so you know a couple of very interesting theories, and the I think hopefully over the next couple of years, then we'll find some new information that'll hook to narrow down what exactly happened uh, during those few years. So thank you very much. And thanks. Uh, if you thanks, thanks to you. And uh, I repeat, uh, I will waiting for you in Italy. <laughs> in a couple well, of years, with yes, a copy of your book. I, I will Absolutely. take a copy, a copy of your book for a signature, please. Absolutely. I, yeah, def I will definitely do that. Maybe even better, I'll get it translated into Italian. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Your Italian is better than my English, remember? <laughs> no, I don't think so. I, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I don't think so with that. But anyway, uh, Alessandro, thank you so much. And uh, now, if you'd like to, uh, our, uh, if you'd like to reach out as the audience now, if you'd like to reach out and learn more about Alessandro, he, is, uh, he does have a Facebook page, he has an Instagram page, and there are, are also uh, other links on academia.edu where you can find him and several of his papers there as well. Otherwise, uh, Alessandro, thank you so much, and uh, please stay tuned for many other episodes and in this series of the backstory on the Shroud of Turin. And please visit guypowell.com and sign up for more of these episodes. And if you'd rate them with five stars, that would be even better. Alessandro, thank you so much. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye now.